Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. Now, to an issue that will be a huge challenge for very many of us in the years, decades to come. It's the result of the twin dynamics of the baby boomers bubble and our breathtaking advances in medical science. Notwithstanding the size and significance of this issue, for most of us, it will be a big taboo. And that almost guarantees that when we're confronted with it, as most of us inevitably will, it's really tough. It's the care of loved ones more and more in our homes in their final days. My next guest knows personally of the great challenges, but also, she says, the great rewards. Literally, it's changed her life. And at last, it has given her an answer to a question she's been asking God for two and a half decades. What do you want me to do with my life? She is psychology student Catriona Smith. Catriona, welcome to Open House. Thank you, Lee. It's great to be here. It's a privilege to meet you. You became a mature age student somewhat in psychology. Yes, I did. I started when I was 41 because for a very long time I couldn't quite work out what I wanted to do with my life or more importantly what God wanted me to do with my life. It's finally led somewhere really exciting. What's that taught you about how God works? It's frustrating for us. We have such a limited view of time. We define time by our watches, but God works very differently. Looking back, I'm grateful for that because the experiences I've had in those 25 years of asking that question have enabled me to do what I'm doing now. What was in your mind when you asked that question first? Wanting to live a life that honoured God and um, served him and made him known in this world. And it wasn't until your dad became ill that that started to play out. Well, I had one of those moments where you, you kind of think you might have heard a little voice in your head, which is a dangerous thing for a psychology student to admit, <laughs> but a little voice saying, you should become a psychologist. And so I acted on it. And that was about three months before my dad died. And now, three and a half years later, I'm nearly there. So tell us a bit about your dad's story. He was a very good man. And in his own way, he tried to serve God and honour God. He'd been sort of fading a little bit during 2007 and he was diagnosed with a lung cancer at the end of 2007 and immediately he was started on a, a course of chemotherapy that lasted 12 months and he got weaker and weaker and towards the end of 2008 I was living outside of Sydney and I'd seen him for the first time in about two months and I just knew I had to come home. Two weeks later he had a seizure and that was when we found out that the lung cancer had metastasized and he now had a brain tumor. How did he deal with this? Uh, other than being quite angry that he'd been told he wasn't allowed to drive his car anymore, he was fine. He just sort of went, oh, well, that's, that's it. In fact, they did another scan and found that he had not one brain tumor. There was one big one. There was another big one hiding behind the big one. And there were five little ones. But Dad immediately turned around and went, oh, Mama bear, papa bear, and the five baby bears. I'm thinking, you've just been told you've got seven brain tumours and you're making fun of them. That was Dad. Such an Aussie black yeah. by the sound of it. How was it looking after him at home? Because that became a huge issue for you. It was something I never questioned. I wasn't asked to do it. I just thought Dad needs more help. Mum couldn't do it on her own and I needed to help him. It was that simple. And for the first two months or so, it was really just a case of keeping him entertained. But then in the last month or so, it got a lot harder and went down very, very quickly. 
What did you learn about the price that you pay, not just as the one going through that, but as the one caring and looking on, but also the things that you learn that are good for you? So research shows that carers of people who are dying, particularly cancer patients, they follow the same kind of highs and lows as the patient on the approach to death. So there'll be, you know, a low around the time of diagnosis and then you start getting a grip on things and then something else will happen and and it brings you both down. I found that that was also my experience with dad. But what I found was that there were a lot of small things that really helped. The biggest of those was humour. Those little moments you have of humour are one of the best foils for the hard things. There's a lot of anxiety and depression that carers generally face. You can't cut yourself off from it. You're watching someone you love die. You know what the outcome's going to be. You don't know what you're going to go through until the point of their death. But you know it's not going to be easy. And so sometimes it's really hard to to pull back from that, to take a break from caring. And I think that might, that's possibly one of the reasons why carers suffer so much anxiety and depression. But not all carers feel that. I think perhaps the phrase that describes it best is bittersweet. Caring for someone at end of life can be challenging, exhausting, confronting, but there's also huge potential for love, for growth, reconciliation, and most importantly for the people who are left behind, healing. Sometimes there are are things that, that keep hurting them, but ultimately they're glad that they've had the opportunity to show someone that love. And it changes lots of outlooks for those who are left behind. I think so. One of the the things that I found looking after Dad was that it changed what I thought I should do with my life. And because I've seen my dad go through that end-of-life period, because we've had the opportunity to share, I guess, a, a good experience of end-of-life, it makes me all the more determined to try and help other people achieve that end because so many have a hard time. It sounds funny saying that phrase, a good experience of end of life. So do you think there could be such a thing as a good death? I think there can. Every person's experience observing death is different, even within the one family observing the same death. You know, deaths can be traumatic. They can be um, unexpected. They can be all sorts of things. But with the elderly and particularly in cases of life-limiting illness, like my father who had cancer, I think it gives us a great opportunity to spend time with people, to focus on relationships, on repairing the things that might have gone awry during a lifetime. They learn a lot about themselves and grow as a result. They learn that they can do things that are difficult. Uh, They learn that, that they have more compassion, more understanding, more love sometimes than they thought possible. That desire to, I guess, to serve someone else can lead to a real growth experience. Enlarging your view of life and view of God? I think so. And it it certainly also teaches you a lot of reliance on God. My biggest coping mechanism while I was looking after Dad was each morning I'd get up and go for a walk. And near where I live, there's a beautiful creek that runs onto the Parramatta River and a beautiful park. And in the mangroves, there's a rock. And at low tide, you can get to the rock and sit there and just watch the water. And I'd go down there each morning and I would pray and I would ask God for some very simple things, for patience, for grace, 
but I would ask for those things each day and each day I was given more than than what I needed to cope with that day's demands. It's also a time unlike any other I think when questions of faith spirituality are confronted like is this all there is and the mind is concentrated powerfully on those kind of questions. Yes for me it was a great benefit to know that um, my father and I believe the same things. I had an aunt who died over 20 years ago now and I remember being terribly distressed at this idea of I didn't know where she stood with God. She died in the same hospital my father died in and I can remember sitting there. She was unconscious and trying to talk to her and, and explain to her God's love and, and hoping that she would hear and would know if she didn't already. With Dad, you know, I had the great benefit of being able to sit in his room at Greenwich Hospital just one floor above where I'd sat with my aunt 20 years before and say to him, read him the words from Revelation 21 about the new heaven and the new earth and that great hope we have of being in a place where we dwell with God, where there's no more pain, there's no more tears, all that, that agony and anguish has passed away and things are how they're meant to be. So it's one thing to go through that experience, but it's another thing to then turn to the research and make that into a thesis for psychology. Why do you do that? I feel like I'm compelled to do this. I need to try and understand why it is that some carers can go through an experience like the one that I did and come out the other side having, I guess on balance, a more positive than negative experience. It's always going to be negative because of the grief involved. But other people come out of that suffering such profound depression that they can't move on with lingering physical health problems, serious repercussions for their finances because they can't work. And so what I'm hoping to understand is what is it about the carers that contributes to that outcome? I think it's a very important work because it's a big issue now and it will be a very big issue in the years and decades to come. We do need to be sensible and plan for the future and to at least think about these things ahead of time, to ask our parents, what do you want? What's important to you? It's a very hard thing to discuss. And I think for the baby boomers, it's going to be particularly hard because some of them have been that little bit older when they've had their own children. And their own children, from what the newspapers say, aren't leaving home as quickly as they possibly could. It's the sandwich generation yes, that I read that's about. that's right. Yes. In the next little while, I think they're going to have a particularly hard time. But I also think they're the people who are going to shake things up and make a real change. It they're seems, like that. Well, they are like that. <laughs> Troublemakers, the lot of you. <laughs> Separate from your psychology thesis, you've also become a Life Circle mentor. Tell us about Life Circle. Life Circle is a wonderful organisation. Um, I was really lucky when I was looking after Dad. One of my sisters made it her job to make sure that I was okay. But not every family is like that. What Life Circle does is basically, it fills a similar function. People who've been through a situation of caring for someone while they're dying, whether it's with cancer or other illnesses, can be trained to be mentors for someone who is now going through that experience. And what a mentor does, Life Circle's main business actually, is provide that emotional support and social support to carers to help them negotiate the challenges of that role. The mentors don't do anything physical. They don't do anything practical. Sometimes they don't even meet the carer. It's just a phone or an email thing. But what they do is be there for the carer 
to be a sounding board, to help them work through problems, to just be someone to say, oh, you know what, he's really annoying me today. Because yes. no matter how much you love the person you're caring for, there will be those times. Yeah. And so the, the mentors are there just to, to support the carer as the carer needs. Catriona, what do you say to God now that you have this answer to your question from 25 years ago and you've seen how it's played out? Oh, I say thank you, but why me? Um, no, I, I think I know the answer to that. I think all the experiences that I've had, all those those times I've kind of thought, oh, well, I'll see where this job takes me. I've learnt new skills each time, and I think each of them are things that I'll be able to use in the future. So I thank God, but I know he's teaching me to rely on him because what I'm hoping to do in the future is a lot bigger than anything I thought I'd ever do. And even though some of my friends go, yes, of course you should do that. It's perfect for you. I sometimes think I can't do it. I just can't do it. And even now with my honours thesis, I look at what I'm trying to do and think I'm not sure I can do it. On your own. On my own. That's right. So every day, you know, like I did when I was looking after dad, each day I have to ask for God's blessing, for his strength, for his direction. You know, this isn't for me, it isn't about me, but I, I feel that it's something that I guess in a way I've been called to do. I'm sure it'll be a great work of service to many in the future. It'll be interesting to see how it pans out in the next 25 years. Catriona, thank you so much indeed. Don't give me that scared look. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much indeed for thank coming you, in Luke. and joining us on Open House. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.